0: Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Not only in the present age, but also with the Lord to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it really is a pleasure to be here this morning. And, you know, next week he, he's told me to go to boat and I do what he tells me these days. <laughs> things change after a while. He even called me during the week and said, hey, Dad, I need to go with the sermon with you. That never used to happen before. Yeah. <laughs> But it's good, you know, eventually we do our job as parents good, the parents, the children then begin to teach us, which is exactly the way it should be. So it's a real pleasure for me to be here this morning. About uh, 42 years ago, 1975, two young pastors graduated from seminary, one in the East Coast, not the East Coast, one in Chicago and the other one in the West Coast. They didn't know each other and they both wanted to plant churches. So they decided to take about six months just to survey the community, about all the things people didn't like about church because they wanted to start a church for people who didn't like church. And it's interesting, from as varied a place as Chicago to Southern California, they came up with exactly the four same top reasons. They only want your money, Uh, the sermons are irrelevant, we leave church feeling more guilty than when we came in, and they're mostly hypocrites. Amazing, isn't it? Same four reasons. Uh, In 2008, 33 years after that survey, LifeWay Research Group did another survey. They looked at 1,400 adults who had Not gone to any kind of place of worship for the last six months or so. Considered themselves, therefore, unchurched people. And asked them various questions. And one of the biggest problems was 72% of them said the church is full of hypocrites. So that one particular reason seems to survive 33 years later. And you know, sometimes we inside the church feel the same way. I was speaking at Fairhaven's Bible conference a couple of weeks ago. And Sham and I were able to reconnect with a lady who used to play the piano for my wife and her sister when they used to sing. And she and her husband, we got to know them quite well, and they've they've aged with us, and they serve in the audiovisual ministry of the church. And to my utter consternation, my wife relayed the story that this friend had told her about how one morning before the service started, uh, one of the people, whether it was somebody in the pastoral staff or leadership, I don't know, actually punched this guy. Sucker punched him, you know, in the church before the service. And she said, "This kind of thing happens often—not the punching, but this kind of (laughs) behavior—and then they will go up to the to the platform and lead the service as if nothing had happened." So we kind of agree with this charge that there's hypocrites in the church. Um, And you know, the other thing that struck me—it's always been that way. We haven't got any worse or better. Way back in the first century, the Apostle Paul, one of the early church's great leaders, who wrote many letters to the churches, wrote a letter to a church called Cor- Corinth, and it's in your Bible in First Corinthians. If you read it, and it's nothing but a litany of problems, divisions from within, party spirit. All of like somebody over here would say, "Well, I belong to the Vijay party, and I belong to the Tony party, and I belong to the Kate party." You know, that's exactly what was going on in that church. They were taking each other to court, having lawsuits. They were chaotic when it came to their worship time. They were unaware of poor people in the midst of them who didn't have enough food to eat while they were gorging themselves there was sexual immorality of all kinds there was pride and in, in the in the exercise of their spiritual gifts. It was just total chaos. That was the church. And so it would seem that things haven't changed very much in the church. Now, at the same time, the same research that was done that, sh- that said that 72% of people still think the church is full of hypocrites, I found a very promising result in that survey. 78% of them said they were we are willing to listen to people tell us what they believe about Christianity. So that's good. Maybe there's somebody like that here this morning. You kind of found your way into church, chose to come in, and you are one of those 72%. I hope you're one of the 78% as well, who say, listen, I'm willing to listen to what you have to say to me about church. And today in particular, I want to talk about the church, because that's what you're going to be talking about for the next four weeks, doing life together. That's what who you are, Upper Room Community Church. And one of the first things I want to share with you is that, The way God motivates us to change is not usually the way we often try. We often try to motivate people by shame. I come from a culture where guilt-based, shame-based education, motivation, parenting, everything was just rampant. But we tend to lapse into that if we're not careful. What's interesting is while God in his word sometimes does speak to us very firmly, he never motivates through guilt or shame. One of the most amazing ways in which God motivates his people to grow and change is by saying, let me tell you who you really are. Let me paint a picture of your calling and of your destiny. Your identity, your destiny, and your calling. When you get a hold of that, you'll want to change. (laughs) Change comes from within. And that's true not only individually, it is true of us collectively as well. So as a church, you're going to be hearing messages that are intending to move us forward in a certain direction. Even the call a few moments ago to get involved in the refugee family, ministry all part of growing. But you're much more likely to do that, motivated from within, if you get a good firm, of, uh, a firm grip on what your identity and your calling are. That's what I want to talk about this morning. And I want to walk you through one particular book in the Bible, letter in the Bible. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. It's actually a circular letter intended to be writ- uh, read by many churches in that area. Let me give you the setting. Paul, Paul is in prison at this time. He's in under house arrest in Rome. Not exactly the most optimistic frame of mind to be in, place to be in anyway. And he also looks outside and he's writing to the Ephesians and he sees that particular church there surrounded by four massive forces. There was the intellectual might of Greece, there was the military might of Rome, there was the religious zealotry of Judaism. And Ephesus was also the seat of the goddess of the underworld, Diana. Sorcery, witchcraft, magic, and spiritual power. There's more power terminology proportionally in the book of Ephesians than in any other portion of the New Testament. What hope was there for the small, insignificant, divided church to succeed when faced with such gigantic opposition? We find ourselves in the same situation today. There are hostile forces arrayed against us all the time. And in many parts of the world, the church faces much more militant hostility than we do here. But we, do, we certainly live in a society There's no friend to grace in the church. And so the way Paul addresses it is that he says, I want you guys to see the way God sees you. <laughs> then you will not be daunted. That's what I want to walk you through in chapter 1 he begins by saying this he said praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in christ five times in this in this letter he talks about the heavenly realms or the heavenly place now he doesn't mean he- you and i when we think of heaven we think of some place way out there far away from us that we will go to one day uh, to correct that we'll take another whole sermon or three sermons uh, but I want to today just simply drive home one point. When Paul talks about the heavens or the heavenly places, he's not talking about some inaccessible place way out there. He's talking about a reality that we cannot see, but it's all around us. I mean, it's literally that far away, just a different dimension. I like to think of it as invisible reality. What we see is visible reality. All these divisions, the hypocrites sometimes that the world sees us and all the flaws and the shortcomings, that's visible reality. Paul in, in, in Ephesians says, I want to show you what invisible reality is like. And he calls that the heavenly realms. And the first thing he says is that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And in that passage that was read for us, Serene, already read for us, I want to read it to you again, and read it now with this light, is a description of some of the blessings uh, it's one long continuous sentence in the Greek no capitalization no commas no paragraphs nothing Paul is ransacking the Greek language to try and get across the fact that you have been blessed unbelievable upper room community church this is about you and this is about the church of Jesus Christ all over the world he said what does he say I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the same. You know what inheritance is awaiting you folks? These people. You might look around and say, really? This is what I have to look forward to when I go to heaven? Oh, but you don't see them the way God sees them. <laughs> what you will see is jaw-dropping beauty if you could see it today. That's the destiny for you and me. So why don't we get along with each other? We're going to live together because we're going to live together <laughs> forever. And that's our riches of our inheritance and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wants them to know power more than anything else because of these four massive oppositions against them. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's four different words that he uses. Somehow, these are the English translations that get across the fact that there's massive powers in the invisible realms that are arrayed against us. And Jesus is crowned far above all of them. About every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And in, in this sentence, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in everywhere. The first thing he wants us to see is that Jesus is the head of the church. And, and Paul realizes that we won't get it. My preaching won't get it across to you. In fact, Paul said, my own preaching won't get it, that's why he prays, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul prays for divine illumination for the eyes of the heart. These eyes see visible reality, but to see invisible reality requires a different set of eyes. They are the eyes of our heart, and they need divine illumination by the Holy Spirit. Unless Unless God opened the eyes of the Ephesians, Paul says, you won't even get it. So I'm not under any delusion. I spent last night and this morning praying that the Spirit of God will give you an enlightened heart so that you can see. I put absolutely no trust in my ability to explain anything, although I will do my best. But it will not happen unless the Spirit opens his eyes. So it's a core prayer. And it's so important to know that Jesus is head of the church over this messed up church sometimes. Uh, um, this morning as I was rehearsing this message, an old story came to mind, you probably even heard it about, about this lady that was on a really fast moving train, was kind of shaking a lot and she was really nervous and she saw this little boy looking out over the window and taking in the scenery, absolutely calm and so she said to the little boy, little boy, aren't you afraid of how much this train is shaking? He said, no, he said, my dad's the engineer and he knows I'm on this train, that's all he needed to know, <laughs> my father's in charge and he knows I'm on this train so this train ain't going to be any problem. That's the picture that came to my mind. Sometimes we might get disillusioned. You might get upset. You might get frustrated. You might get worked up. It's okay. We need to care about our church. We need to feel deeply about the church. But don't be alarmed. Jesus is in charge of the church. He's the head of this church. And that's the first thing Paul wants you to know. The power. And then he goes on to say the church itself is a demonstration of the incomparable, immeasurable greatness of Christ's power. And how how do we know that? It is shown in some ways, and he moves on in chapter 2. Remember, there's no chapter division in the original. So what he's going to talk about now is an illustration of this incredible power that he wants us to know. In chapter 2 he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us. And we sang about that this morning. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in, there it is again, in the heavenly realms, invisible reality, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. So how do we know this power of Christ, this Christ who's head over all things? It was a power that was exerted in you and me when we became followers of Jesus. You know, sometimes we think it's just an easy, simple thing we did to become Christians. And from a human perspective, it's very easy. I gave my life to Jesus. I walked forward at a crusade. I prayed the sinner's prayer. But if we could only know what the conditions of our hearts were like and what incredible power God had to exercise even get us to the point of saying yes to Jesus. we'd be. I mean, he, says, he said, I want you to know that. I want you to know the incomparable greatness of your power in taking you, who you were, and who you have become. That's a demonstration of Christ's power. And notice, we have been raised with Christ. It is not only Jesus who has been raised far above all principalities, powers, rulers, and dominion. He says, you and I have been made alive with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Guess where, where we are seated, folks? In the heavenly realms, not invisible reality. Invisible reality says every single one of us who are followers of Jesus are above all principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual. He said, Rome, forget it. Greece, forget it. Judaism, forget it. Diana, forget it. You are seated far above all of them in the heavenly realms. He wants us to see that. This is your destiny. This is your identity. This is your calling. This is who you really are. Seated with Christ. And then he goes on to say he's also a demonstration of the immeasurable riches of his grace. And that it will take eons in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. You know, uh, the same thing. Just as we have no understanding of how much power it really took to bring us to the point of saying yes to Jesus. We may sing about amazing grace and so appropriately we started this morning. But we don't fully get the impact of amazing until this couple of months ago when I was looking at this, and I know this text so well. He was saying that in the coming ages, he will demonstrate through the church the riches of his grace. Now, why would it take ages and ages and ages for God to demonstrate his grace? Because that's how much grace it took to take rebels like you and me who rebelled against the holiness of God To make us into God's children. And God's sons and daughters. See because we do not understand. The magnitude of his holiness. We do not understand the magnitude of sin. Against infinite majesty. We don't understand what a big deal it is. That a holy God could forgive you and me. And still remain holy. He says. And we won't understand it. But in invisible reality we will continue to. And so Paul prays. That you will know. That Jesus is head over all things of the church. That his work in you. In bringing you to him as a demonstration of his power and as a demonstration of the riches of his grace. And then in chapter 3, he says one more thing. He says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly realm. So something is happening in the invisible realities. God is using you and me as a demonstration to these rulers and powers and authority of his manifold wisdom. It's a beautiful word in the original language, manifold. If you think of some of these intricate uh, oriental rugs and carpets, how beautifully they've been embroidered. Or you think of a multicolored garment. That's the meaning of the word manifold. It's it's multifaceted, multidimensional. And so the church, believe it or not, is God's answer to the rulers, the powers, and the principality authorities to say, this is what my wisdom is like. You know, looking at you and me, if would say, you and I are demonstrations of God's wisdom, that's kind of hard to believe. But that's what he says is really true of you. Now you can see why Paul prays that they'll get it. Because <laughs> you're sitting here saying, oh, is that really true of me? Is it really true of this church that we are a demonstration of the greatness of his power, the riches of his grace? and of his multifaceted wisdom, and that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, far above all principalities and powers. Yes, yes, yes. That's why Paul says, pray, God, please open their eyes. And after being a Christian for 54 years, a pastor for 37 years, almost 72 years in age, I'm still pleading with God. Help me to see the church the way you see the church, Jesus. So that's who we are. Now, because pictures grab us even more than concepts, throughout this book, Paul has also distributed some metaphors to drive home to us other dimensions of what the body is like. Remember, we are doing one thing, your identity, your destiny. Who are you and where are you headed? Where are you now? That's what he's painting for them. So one of the things he talks about is that we're a body. This is used throughout the New Testament many times. And the reason why body is so important is that it's connected. Every part of it's connected to every other part. And the connection is an organic connection. The same blood that flows through my left arm flows through my right arm. The same brain that lets my left arm wiggle or my right leg do this and this. All is the same thing. That's what makes it the body. Otherwise, it's only a mechanical connection. If, if for some reason I'm to lose a finger or whatever and they try and attach it back again with careful surgery... That might, m- will ensure a mechanical connection, but an organ- not an organic one. It's only organic if they take off the bandages and everything's nice and pink. And not dull gray and dark blue. It's not your name on the membership rolls uh, or the money that you give that makes you part of this body. It's you are connected by virtue of the fact that you are followers of Jesus. He is the head and you are connected with one another. That's a deep organic connection, which means you cannot hurt somebody else without hurting yourself. I mean, can you imagine this right arm saying, I'm so angry with you, I'm going to punch you. Really? (laughs) You're going to hurt too? We all hurt. By the way, it also means that when one part of the body hurts, every other part rushes to it. I mean, you know what, Like, I just have to cut my finger. Instinctively, my finger goes to my mouth. I want to start sucking all the antibodies that are in the saliva, start working right away. I don't have to think about it. Every part of my being is galvanized into action. These are the pictures Paul wants us to be like. You're going to do life together. You're connected organically. He says, get that. Then secondly, he talks about a family. You're all one family because you're one God as father. You know, just like in our nuclear families, nobody asked for your permission before you had brothers and sisters to deal with. In the same way, God doesn't ask for your permission before he adds brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. (laughs) So you are. These people are your brothers and sisters. That connection is organic. And just like in a nuclear family, you cannot avoid long-term consequences of broken relationships in nuclear families that you don't try to fix. In the same way, you cannot be cavalier about divisions in the church as much as you are able to do something about them and walk away without hurting yourself in the process. Because you're one family. You're connected as siblings, as brothers and sisters. Thirdly, he says, you're a temple. And this one I want to read for you. Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and and members of God's household. There's the family and body again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. In some sense, the Bible has been all about the temple. Way back, and and Vijay has walked you through this many times. Way back in the beginning, the the, the temple was the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve and God in the midst of them. Then the tabernacle in the wilderness that God gave Moses instructions to build. And it was filled with his glory in that holy of holy place. Then the permanent uh, temple that David built uh, and Solomon built for David. And then that one was destroyed and then Herod rebuilt the temple. And finally Jesus walked away from it and said, this house is left to you desolate. And the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, the birth of the church, and we became the new temple. Living stones, he said, all put together. Jesus is the cornerstone. By the way, cornerstone is a powerful analogy because some cornerstones in literal buildings from which all the vertical, the horizontal, all took perfect uh, coordination. If you didn't get the cornerstone right, everything was chaotic. You got the cornerstone right, the building rose up perfectly. Some of the cornerstones were 37 feet long, solid blocks of stone. He said Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And then the apostles and the prophets, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of it's like the foundation taking its cues from Jesus. And then you and I are living stones being built together. And guess who's living in it? The Holy Spirit is living. That's who you are, a temple. And by the way, the word that is used, joined together, it's a very interesting word. It's like kind of jammed together and compacted. You know, there are two kinds of buildings. Imagine building a wall with bricks. You can kind of build it very fast, because any old brick will do. They all look the same, right? Just put one brick, the next one will be fine. But now imagine building a stone fireplace with these stones. They're not like bricks. You can't pick up any old stone and fix it to the next stone. You got to get a stone and that kind of matches the contours of this other stone, kind of jam it in there a little bit and put the bricks and the mortar. And then you get this multifaceted wall that looks much more interesting than a brick building where everything looks the same. You and I are not all bricks that look identical. We're different shaped rocks. Some are big, some are small, some are craggy and some are smooth. And and we're kind of compacted together into this building. Everywhere the reinforcing is one of taking different things and putting them together so they can work together. So you say you're a temple and the Holy Spirit lives within you. And then finally, most beautiful of all, he says, You're the bride. Not only the body, not only a family. Not only a temple, if you still haven't got it, you're the bride, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. In the midst of a sermon on on, on marriage, he talks about Jesus. Husbands, love your wives. How just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. That's why when uh, history reaches its apex, it is described in terms of a wedding. The marriage supper of the lamb. And the church is the bride of Christ. You know, I do a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. And I see the bride on rehearsal day, and she looks like nothing. She looks like the next day. <laughs> More often than not, she's frazzled. She's frustrated. The poor groom has forgotten something at the last minute. So she's angry. You know, We've been through all of those things. But then all that is forgotten less than 24 hours. Nobody's looking at the groom. As soon as the bride, here comes the bride, the music changes, and all eyes are fixed on the bride at that moment. That's our destiny, folks, one day. <laughs> Believe it or not, we will be radiant, holy. Why? Because Jesus is making us holy. He's working in us to present us to himself holy and radiant without blemish and without spark. Are you beginning to like yourself a little bit? I hope so. I hope you're beginning to sit back and say, wow, I'm part of this church, hypocrites and all. <laughs> I don't want to be part of anywhere else. That's the whole point. That's what Paul wants us to get. A demonstration of the greatness of his power, the riches of his grace, of his manifold wisdom, a body, a building, a family, and a radiant pride. So you see the church? Just pause for a minute. Let it sink in. What would happen if I really, really understood myself like this and us in community like this? Then the kind of thing that Vijay is going to walk you through and Dave is going to walk you through the next three weeks is going to make a lot more sense. This is how God motivates. Hey guys, I want you to see who I am. I want you to see who you are and who you are going to be one day. However, when you want to finish, take the last few minutes to talk about something very important. It's not going to be easy. And the reason you're not going to be easy is that we're going to have to fight for this. We're going to have to fight to maintain this perspective and translate it into reality because we have an enemy 24-7. It's all out war. Let me read a few verses for you. Ephesians six ten to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stake the stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. And there it is again in the heavenly realms. Isn't that amazing? The, the, the sphere of our blessing, we've been blessed with spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. The place where we have been raised with Christ far above all principalities and powers and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. The place where we are the demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms is the place of spiritual warfare and battle as well. That's another dimension of invisible reality. We are in 24-7 warfare, folks. We have to get that. You have, we have to get rid of the peacetime mentality. We live very differently in a time of war than in peace. This is 24-7 war and he wants you to get it because you will never become who you are Unless you realize that you're also in warfare and in a battle. Who's our enemy? Our enemy is Satan. Not political parties. Not people with different political persuasions. Not people who are religious followers of different religions. Not the new atheists. They're not our enemies. They are people who can become potential brothers and sisters. They can become living stones into this temple. They can become part of the family of God. They're not our enemies. We need to stop thinking about people as our enemies. We have one enemy, Satan, the principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness, because they are the ones often behind the political machinery that is against the church. And the reason why Satan hates the church is because God has given to the church what he wanted. You see, he wanted to make himself equal to God. Sometimes you read in Isaiah chapter 14, it talks about the picture of of Lucifer, created probably holy, radiant, beautiful, wise, But he wanted to make himself like God. And he said, I will raise myself up. (laughs) And now he was expelled for that. And this church made up of humans. Weak, powerless humans compared to satanic forces and powers. Full of divisions and problems. Hypocrites. He's made them the bride. And you know, hell hath no fury like people scorned, right? That's literally true. (laughs) And so he is furious against the church. He hates the church because Jesus loves the church. By the way, that's why he hates the poor, because Jesus loves the poor. And his primary strategy, right from the very beginning, has been the same. Division through deceit. What did he do to Adam and Eve? He deceived them. eh? You can't trust God. You can't believe God is good. That's the fundamental temptation. We just taught you that well over and over again. So that's the deceit. And the consequence of the dis- believing the deceit was division. Division between Adam and Eve, division between them and God, division between them and creation. And so he's still at work that way. His primary work through us. That's why I never get alarmed when people suddenly get sick in the church and all that kind of stuff. Those things happen, they come and go. That's not the real mark. I get much more alarmed when there's division in the church. That's, that's the true mark that the enemy is at work. Listen, my brothers and sisters. If you are contributing to division in the church of Jesus Christ, you are cooperating more with Satan than in any other thing that you do. That should alarm us. That should alarm us. To say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. That doesn't mean there won't be challenges. You'll hear all about that. Working together, just like working with this family, has had both rewards and challenges. But let's not have anything to do with division. That's just work. Okay, that's our enemy. What's our fundamental strategy? With that, I'm finished. Paul says, "Pray." Therefore, put on the full armor of God, and then he goes on to say, "Pray, pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers in the Holy Spirit." Prayer is not another weapon. When he talks about the breastplate of righteousness and shield of faith and all those things, they are not; they're all individual dimension of the weapon. But prayer is not another weapon that you can take it or leave it. It is the means by which we put on the weapons of God. It is the means by which we deploy the weapons. That's why prayer is so foundational. And Paul says to pray. Pray First of all he said pray in the spirit. Which means it's the spirit who guides us and leads us to pray. And I think I've taught you this before when I've spoken on, on having meaningful personal devotions. I always begin fairly early in my time alone with God. I specifically invite the Holy Spirit to take charge and to lead me into his presence. Because I'm to pray in the spirit. In the flesh I get prayer wrong all the time. But the Spirit can guide me. He actually draws me into the very prayer life of Jesus himself. Because Jesus is praying forever, interceding at the right hand of God the Father. Whenever we pray, we are participating in the prayer life of Jesus. And so, it's, it's a good thing to specifically ask the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by praying in the Spirit. He will teach, he will inspire, he will guide, he will strengthen. He will bring Scripture to mind. And secondly, he says, pray for the Spirit. Because he says in Ephesians chapter 5, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And, in the text of, scripture, of Ephesians, he's given us some things to pray for because there are things that the Holy Spirit alone can do. And those are good things to start praying about. I've just mentioned a few of them here. First of all, we pray for wisdom and understanding. Remember, Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened, that they may know the hope of their calling, that you may be given wisdom and revelation to know you better. Knowing Jesus better is so foundational to our lives. It is as we know him and get captivated by Jesus that obedience then becomes a very different issue than guilt and shame-based ruling, uh, um, obedience to someone who is a harsh ruler. So pray, pray for wisdom and understanding of these heavenly realms. Because the things, the visible realities are what we see all the time. They come at us with tremendous power. We have to make no effort to see the division, to see the hypocrisy, to see the difficulty, to see what makes us upset at this other person. But to see invisible reality takes that illumination. So pray regularly. Pray regularly that that you will see this church as your inheritance. It will change the way in which you see one another. So we need to pray for wisdom and understanding. Secondly, because we are the temple being, being built into a temple by the Holy Spirit, we can pray that God will be really present in our church. By the way, this is the essence of revival. Revival is essentially God showing up. God showing up so that his omnipresence becomes manifestly present. By the way, there's no place where he isn't, right? We know that. So why do we have to pray for the presence of God? When we pray that God will make himself present, when we sing songs at the beginning that invite us or the prayer of invocation, the reason we pray that is not because God isn't here, but what we're really saying is, God, you who are here, show up so that we know that you're here. (laughs) So, we don't miss your presence. Make your om- omnipresence manifestly present to us. So, we need to pray, both individually and our family. And by the way, folks, everything that I've been talking about the church applies in spades to the nuclear families. Do you know why there is so little in the New Testament about families? <laughs> There's actually very, very little in the New Testament about families. It's because the church family is the foundational family, and nuclear families are microcosms of the church. So, all of these things that I've talked about are just as true of, of nuclear families and it's our responsibility and our privilege to think about the families of that in which we live in exactly the same way and then thirdly in ephesians 3 paul says i pray that you may be strengthened with might by the spirit in the inner man so christ will dwell in your heart by faith and you being rooted and grounded in love will together with all the saints grasp what is the length the breadth the height and the depth of the love of christ in the messages that are going to follow, undoubtedly, in being, working together as a family, love will be foundational. And Paul says, you have to be strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit so that Christ can dwell in your heart and you will know the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ. So we need to pray for that. And finally, because the sword of the Spirit with which you fight the devil is the word of God, You need to pray for God's word to become alive within us and accessible as a sword in the heat of the battle. So let me just draw this message to a close by actually taking a couple of minutes to lead us in prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for taking a man who was under house arrest And he so understood what things were really like that not all the might of Rome, all the wisdom of Greece, all the relentless religiosity of Judaism or the frightening power of Diana the goddess of the underworld couldn't faze this man one bit because he saw Jesus head of the church. And I thank you for the Apostle Paul's prayers which they have teach us to pray. And so I pray, I pray for myself. I pray for Upper Room Community Church. I pray for all the, the local churches that meet in this city, in this country, all over the world, Father, hundreds of thousands, millions of churches, small and large, humble and magnificent, popular and not known, poor and rich, weak and strong, And that is your beloved church. And so I pray for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. I pray that we will understand who we are in you, who we are becoming in you, and that our identity and our destiny would have such incredible, motivating, and transforming force in our lives. I pray, Father, that you will be pleased to sit enthroned on the praises of your people. And demonstrate your presence with us. Make your presence known. Revive us. Show us the light of your face. We pray to Father, that that one measure by which everything is tested, our love, will grow strong and multiply in this congregation because Christ will dwell in our hearts by faith. And that we will Together with the saints, together with the saints, grasp the length, the bright depth and the breadth and the depths of, of the love of Jesus. And to know that love which surpasses all knowledge. So unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. To him be glory in the church, through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. In every situation in life, whether it concerns you personally, uh, in your families, in your church, in your work there's always two starting points you can either start from the situation and make some conclusions about God or you can start with God and make conclusions about the situation my blessing for you can you stretch out your hand to receive it please my blessing for you is that you will increasingly become a people whose starting point will be God so you can think accurately about what you can see receive this in Jesus name